I'm Jody Butts, and it's my pleasure to welcome all of you today. I'd like to first begin by acknowledging that I'm joining this virtual gathering today from Ottawa, part of the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. Canada 2020 is grateful to convene and work in this community and many others across Turtle Island, and to continue adding to its rich history of exchange in person and in this virtual setting. I'd also like to say thank you to all of Canada 2020 sponsors, without whom today's discussion would not be possible. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome two incredible climate advocates to unpack some of what's coming out of COP26, what was missing, and what comes next, and to take some of your questions as well. Catherine Hayhoe is an accomplished, multiple award-winning atmospheric scientist who studies climate change and why it matters to us here and now. You might know her from her TED Talk, which has nearly 4 million views, her work as chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy, or from her most recent book, Saving Us, a climate scientist's case for hope and healing in a divided world. Catherine McKenna is Canada's former Minister of the Environment and Climate Change, as well as Minister of Infrastructure and Communities. She was a lead negotiator of the Paris Agreement before introducing and successfully defending landmark legislation that established a carbon price across Canada. She has also led efforts to phase out coal, reduce plastics in oceans and waterways, made historic investments in public transport and green infrastructure, including by leveraging public sector investment, and doubled the amount of nature protected in Canada in partnership with Indigenous peoples. This is sure to be a rich conversation. Very grateful to have you both here. Welcome to you both. And Catherine McKenna, I'll hand it over to you. All right. Thank you, uh, Jody. Uh, it's great to be joining Canada 2020. And I think we left out one thing. I don't know. Catherine, the, Catherine with a K, <laughs> Catherine with a C. Did we mention that you're Canadian? You did not. I don't know. We did it. That's like a pretty awesome fact um, because uh, Catherine is a ex great example of an export uh, to the U.S. who's doing amazing, amazing things on climate. And if you spend any time in the climate world, uh, she's everywhere. Um, and uh, she's got her book. You can buy it. Look, I got the book, uh, Saving Us. She's got it behind her. Got it. You can get it hot off the press. We'll, we'll get to that. Um, but we'll also talk about COP or Copland, as I Coplandia, maybe is how I like to call it. Cops are a thing, um, and uh, we just had COP twenty six. So let's just start at the beginning because I think sometimes like people are wondering, like, okay, COP, what is a COP? So I actually started with that when I was um, first became minister. Uh, I went to Paris um, for the negotiations, like two days into my job, and I was like, what is a COP? So first of all, if anyone's wondering, a COP is Conference of the Parties, which provides no <laughs> information to you except all the countries from the world come together um, for the COP uh, on climate change. Uh, and this was number 26. So maybe set the stage for us. So it, it, for folks who are, who are listening in, they're probably like, okay, what is it like at a COP? So let's start at the very beginning. When you go to COP, because it's a thing. What's a COP, Catherine? Well, first of all, it is Conference of Parties, but it's Conference of Parties to something. And that is an even bigger acronym. It's the UNFCCC. What that means is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was signed by just about every country in the world, including Canada, in 1992. And in it, 
all the countries of the world agreed to stabilize heat trapping gas levels in the atmosphere to prevent dangerous human interference with the climate system. Then they spent 23 years arguing over what was dangerous until Paris, which is where you were, and then agreed to stabilize warming at below two degrees Celsius and 1.5 if we can. So why do we keep having meetings? Because we aren't doing enough. And at these meetings, all the countries come together and it's sort of, I think of it almost like a potluck dinner. So, you know, along comes- Really, really long potluck. <laughs> Some people bring terrible dishes. Well, that was what I was gonna <laughs> say next. Really awesome exactly. dishes. <laughs> so, so, you know, some countries show up with like one old fish finger they dragged out of the back of the freezer. And then another country might show up with this like fresh baked apple pie and you cut into it and it's full of hot air. And then, you know, Costa Rica or Bhutan shows up with this fresh pasta salad packed with veggies and homemade dressing. And everybody puts their offering on the table and it's very clear who is and who isn't contributing what they promised. Wow. Okay. So we've got, that's actually, I haven't heard that analogy. I Maybe I've got a good one about how net zero by 2050 is like stopping drinking by 2050. So I might come up with that. Stay tuned. Okay. But okay. So at this potluck dinner, everyone came to the table. Some people were big disappointments with their meals and some people actually brought some real things and some people looked good and then it wasn't really, it actually was really disappointing. But um. I think everyone's trying to, you know, get the narrative out. Like there's like a competing narratives. Like, was this a disaster? Was this a massive success? Was it somewhere in between? And uh, how should we, like, how should regular folks who are really worried about climate change, and by the way, Catherine, I don't know if you've been seeing what's the images from British Columbia right now. They are shocking. The amount of rainfall, they've never seen so much rainfall so quickly, which has resulted in flooding, in mudslides. Communities are cut off. Vancouver is cut off from the rest of Canada, but so communities are cut off from other communities. It's the military is in there. So anyway, we are thinking about everyone in BC, but I think it, it makes the point that, you know, if you're a regular person, a Canadian, you're seeing these images, you're really worried and you're thinking, okay, they had COP. Have we solved everything? Are we on a path? Should we feel optimistic? Should we be really pessimistic? So what should people think after COP? Well, first of all, what happened at COP and what should people think? Well, first of all, um, going into all the countries in the world trying to agree on something. And the problem is, is that it's a consensus process. So a couple of bad apples can spoil the barrel. And that's sort of what happened at the last minute with India and China saying, well, we're not gonna sign it unless you say phase down coal rather than phase out coal. There's a lot of expectations going in, but I never expected this to fix everything because that's just not the way human systems work. I mean, we've never had every country in the world come together like this and agree to voluntarily, because how else are you gonna enforce it, voluntarily eliminate the primary source of energy for their economy. I mean, this is enormous. And when you think about where we've come, before Paris, we were heading for a four degree Celsius warmer world, right? And four degrees might not sound like much, but imagine if your body is running a four degree Celsius temperature, you're in the hospital, um, you have serious consequences. And the temperature of our planet is as stable as that of the human body over the course of human civilization. So a four degree warming would be the end of civilization as we know it. 
It is not about saving the planet, it's about saving us. So before Paris, we're heading for four degrees. Just before Glasgow, we were heading for 2.7 degrees with what the countries had promised. Now, with what the countries have promised by 2030, we're heading for 2.4 degrees. And if countries carry out their, their net zero targets, which Canada has a net zero target by 2050, then we would have a 66% chance of ending up at 1.8 degrees. So that's progress. Is it enough? No. Did anybody expect it to be enough? I don't know. I certainly didn't. Did you? No, no, no. I mean, and, and I actually, I've said to people in a way, I mean, cops don't reduce emissions, countries do, right? And and the one thing that I think, so I think, so you've given us a case for prag, to be pragmatic, to be optimistic, but to push to do more. My concern, and is this a real concern, is that in these scenarios, at the end, you got to do the work. And having been Minister of Environment and Climate Change, we put a price on pollution. Gosh, we had to go all the way to the Supreme Court. Phasing out coal is really hard. We're trying to figure out our grid. We're trying to figure out prices for ratepayers. Investments in infrastructure, they take a very long time. Um, and you got to do this across the board. So what about, because people have talked about this, um, the implementation gap. Mm -hmm. Well, I like the way you said that. It's not cops that reduce emissions, it's countries. And I would add to that, because if you looked at everybody who was there in Glasgow, only about 10% of the people who were there, roughly, I mean, I didn't stand at the door counting heads, I'm just taking a guess here, but only about 10% were the actual country negotiators. Who were the rest of the 90% of people? It was people representing corporations and companies, people representing, um, you know, from, I did events with, you know, everybody from Ikea to Amazon. There were people representing cities, people representing nonprofits and organizations like the Rotary Club and my own organization, the Nature Conservancy. There were students there and activists and artists. There were children and grandparents. Um, there were more fossil fuel representatives than all, I think all the Pacific states put together, over no. 500 of them. So everybody was there, and it isn't, it isn't COP that reduces emissions. I would say it's everybody. It's companies, corporations, organizations, cities, countries, provinces. It's schools. It's places of work. It's neighborhoods. It's churches. Every single one of us have a role to play. And that gap between ambition and implementation, it's not only up to the federal government. It yeah. is quite literally up to all of us to close that gap. So I think that's a really good point because, of course, I even fall into uh, this this trap, which is a bad trap, especially when I was minister of saying, like, you know, the federal government, you know, we're trying to do more. We're doing like the end of the day. And, and you know, in Canada, we are a federation. So provinces have a huge role to play. And so, you know, we've had provinces that have played ball and been very ambitious. And we've been had provinces who've been much less ambitious. And that has a huge impact on your targets. But you're right to say a bunch of other people were there. Um, and uh, I mean, I think people were quite surprised uh, by the huge presence of fossil fuel companies. And obviously, some of them are doing good work. Uh, some of them are doing less. Uh, and I think that's just a reality. We know that. And um, the net zero by 2050 uh, can be a get out of jail free card. I worry about that because it's so far away. And we know if you wait to the very last minute to get off um, uh, fossil fuels and to transition, it's going to have a much greater impact in terms of the temperature rise than if you do the actions now. But you're right that it's it's also a lot of other folks. Um, 
I did an initiative, a plug for this, Women Leading on Climate. And I, I met women from all fields, uh, I'm walks of life and girls, and like you, scientists, but also, you know, entrepreneurs, uh, negotiators, um, you know, activists, uh, a lot of young activists that were there. So I think that there are a lot of other folks and, and getting everyone to work together, I think, is, is the critical part. So maybe let's talk about that. So, okay, we've gone to Copland. We've emerged. You and I are still exhausted. I'm still getting up at 4 a.m. I'm like, oh my gosh, it was it was certainly something and amazing conversations. And I think I think there's a much better sense of what needs to happen. And now, you know, you can't be at a company, uh, a CEO, and not be versed uh, on climate. And I think that's a big change. It's not just your ESG people who, for folks that are in the business community that are watching this. But what is this? What needs to happen now? Um, like we've left COP, so that's great. We've had this, you know, some people raging success, some people desperate failure. You know, I think you and I are in the camp with progress was made. People had to show up with more ambition, better food, but there's still a lot more work to do in terms of raising ambitions, but also actually getting things done. So what, what do you want to see now? Now everyone's gone home, party's over. We need to acknowledge both what has been accomplished as well as how much more there is to do. And as always, you know, the truth is halfway in between. Um, did, did, did COP actually advance advance the boulder down the hill? Yes, it did. Did it get it going fast enough? No, it didn't. We have to actually, you know, put legs on it now. So what do we do? How do we get things going? It's really interesting because I'm a scientist, and so I diagnose the problem. I can tell you exactly how bad it is, how much worse humans made it, how much greater area is burned by wildfires, how much more rain is being dumped because of climate change, how much more likely the heat wave we saw this past summer out west was because of climate change. The answer is over 150 times more likely. Um, but as a climate scientist, for a long time I struggled with, well, what do I tell people when they say, what should I do? And so for a long time, I thought, well, look, you know, look at our carbon footprint. Each of us has a carbon footprint and we can reduce our emissions and that's what we can do. And of course we can, but that's not what changes the world in and of itself. What changes the world is when we engage what I think of as our climate shadow. In other words, how we interact with everybody else that we're connected with in our lives, the people in our neighborhood and in our city and in our province, the people in our organization, our school, our place of worship, the place where we work, the team that we're part of, the group that we're part of. When we engage with others, that's when we can catalyze action that adds even more hands to that giant boulder and pushes it down the hill even faster. And that's what's actually going to fix the problem. And so what's really the most important thing to do is talk about it. Because you know what? We're not. In Canada, 75% of us are worried about climate change. 75%. But most people feel helpless and hopeless. We don't know what we can do to help. But when we engage with others, when we catalyze action through using our voice to talk about why it matters where we live and what we can do to be part of the solution, and I'm going to be talking talking to a group of about a thousand school kids just outside of the Toronto area right after we talk here today. And that's what I'll talk to them about. We truly can make a difference. And what we've seen is that it does not matter how old you are. It does not matter where you live. It does not matter how you know, big your platform is. Every single one of us has a voice to use as the most powerful voice, uh, force that we have to catalyze action at our school, our place of work, our home, everywhere we go, we can do something that makes a difference. So let's talk about talking. 
Um, so we, my American friends, they're always surprised. They're like, what? You had your Thanksgiving? Cause, uh, but your Thanksgiving, uh, well, you're Canadian, but your American Thanksgiving is coming up. So obviously Thanksgiving, great time. Everyone's at the table. But the problem with talking about it is not everyone's on the same page. So I think, first of all, we'll start about talking about it. I mean, do you start with the facts? And I know I'm, maybe I'm asking a leading question because in one of your chapters, which is really great, it says it's called the problem with facts. And I think that sometimes we get, you know, Copland uh, can be a bit like that. Everyone's just talking in this weird jargon and just throwing out facts and it can be overwhelming. People can fight, but maybe talk about like, how do you have these conversations? And then we'll get into the second piece, which is what if your your uncle does not agree with you at all? How do you have that conversation and not have everyone rushing from the table or screaming at each other? So let's start with how do we, what are we talking about? When we talk about it, are we putting out our best facts that we've got and, and, you know, where the planet's at and all the numbers or what, how do we talk about it? Well, when we get worried, and again, you know, three quarters of us are already worried. And if we're a mom or for a young person, then we tend to be even more worried than the average. So we think if people aren't doing anything, it's because they're not worried. So what we tend to do is exactly what you said. We sort of load up our dump truck of scary facts. And trust me, as a scientist, there are a lot of scary facts and they're all true. We load up our dump truck of scary facts and we just sort of dump it on people. But the real problem is, is that we don't understand why it matters to us here and now in ways that are directly relevant to our lives. And we don't understand what we can do about it. So if somebody tells me about the polar bears and the permafrost and the sea level rise in Antarctica, I mean, that's terrible, but what am I supposed to do with that information? And my self-defense mechanism kicks in if I can't do anything and I just sort of metaphorically go back to bed and pull the covers up back over my head. Instead, what we have to do is this. We have to talk about what's happening where we live in ways that matter to us, whether it's the crazy Ottawa and Toronto floods from, I know it feels like forever just before COVID, but that's when they were, whether it's the heat wave or the smoke that we could see in the air this summer that we were breathing in, whether it's the absolutely insane situation out in Vancouver right now with it being cut off by road from the rest of the country, the heat waves and the wildfires this summer, we are already being affected here and now. It's no longer about the future or Antarctica. It's about right where we live, our homes, the air we breathe, the insurance rates that we pay, our economy. But then we need to talk about what solutions look like. Solutions like, yes, clean energy and efficiency and smart agriculture and investing in nature. I mean, we could actually take up a third of the carbon we produce by investing in our ecosystems, our soils, um, through smart farming and through our forests. And that's part of what you did, setting aside our natural lands. Um, but there's also things that we can do individually in the place where we work, doing an energy audit, looking at where we get our energy from, switching to electric vehicles, and we can even do things in our personal life. So just before COVID, and I tell this story in the book, I was speaking at one of the largest churches in Southern Ontario on a Sunday. And I talked about how, as a Christian, I care about climate change. And if you're a Christian, then that gives you every reason you need to care. And you don't have to be a Christian. Every major world religion has some aspects of stewardship or care for nature and caring for those less fortunate than us who are most affected by climate change in it. 
And if you're not a person of faith, well, are you a human who lives on this planet? Do you breathe air? Do you drink water? Do you eat food? Do you enjoy anything about this planet? Then you have every reason you need to care too. So I started with what people had in common in that place. I connected the dots to what was happening in Southern Ontario and how it affects our lives and how it affects the most marginalized and vulnerable people in Canada as well as on the other side of the world. And then I talked about what we could do. And as I was standing at the door of the church, people were leaving, I was sort of eavesdropping. And I heard one woman walking out saying, I've always been worried about climate change, but I never knew what to do, so I did nothing. But now I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna eat the Christmas leftovers because food waste is a big source of heat trapping gas emissions. And that'll get me started. And then somebody else said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to start a stewardship committee and everybody can join to talk about things that we can do together. And then I hear from kids who are doing amazing things at their schools and parents who are doing incredible things in their neighborhoods. And when I was at COP, and you probably saw this too, I talked to a lot of people in big businesses and big corporations. And what they said is they said that now when they interview all the best and the brightest new students just coming out looking for a new job, those students are interviewing them. They're saying, what is your sustainability plan? Do you have a net zero goal? How do you plan to get there? How are you implementing sustainability across your supply chain? And they said, to get the best and the brightest working for our company, we have to have a climate plan because that's the only way that they wanna work for us. So every single one of us has a voice and we can make a difference every way in our lives in what we consume ourselves, in how we interact with people around us, in how we invest our money if we're fortunate enough to have that. Every aspect of our lives, we can truly engage and make a difference because this thing matters to all of us. So I think that's a really good point. And it's interesting in Canada because I've seen a huge evolution. In 2015, uh, when I was first minister, you know, people cared about climate change, but there was a real concern that that was like a one-off, like they would care about it and then it would drop. Like in the pooling, it would be like one or two and then it would drop to six or seven. So don't care about it too much. Uh, you know, no, I'm not saying anyone gave me that advice. Yeah, probably some people did give me that advice. I said, well, I'm environment, Minister of Environment, Climate Change, and it's real. Um, and we got to have a plan. But the, the, the attitudes of Canadians have really shifted. Like it's the number one issue. I think I saw a poll recently and maybe someone who's uh, listening in, it was like, I think it was 70% of Canadians. Like, so Canadians, it hasn't really dropped in importance. I mean, obviously people have been very focused on COVID, but I think that they recognize that once we get out of COVID, we've still got a massive crisis to deal with and that's the climate crisis. So I think the attention, the conversations, um, maybe even sometimes the negative conversations, because they certainly highlighted the issue at a national level, which wasn't always pleasant, I'd say, if you're my shoes. But um, I think maybe it got people really thinking about, okay, what, what are we doing? What is the cost of acting, of not acting? Um, and I would say, I see some questions there. So please keep on sending the questions. We are going to have a Q&A at the end. Um, so I do want to ask, though, what do we do when you're in a conversation that's really polarizing? Well, maybe let's start, like, why do you think sometimes it gets so heated? You and I have talked about this. Um, you know, you can be online or you can be sitting at the dinner table or you can, you know, be out in the streets and some people get really upset and you can end up, you know, huge shouting match with no understanding. So 
why and and maybe we can put aside the people there are some people who are just haters i'm just gonna say it i'll put it out there on our twitter feed probably right now as we speak so let's let's take those away people are just you know doing that i don't know why but but let's take real people um why like why do you think it can be such a challenging conversation and then how like okay it's great if you're a church and everyone's like well i haven't really thought about it, so now i'm going to think about it, i'm going to do something so it's kind of positive but it's not always going to be positive so maybe why why is there polarization around climate and how do we talk about it when it's hard to talk about it i have one clear answer to that and it is not lack of education it is not lack of intelligence it is not lack of awareness it is simply solution aversion that's what it is in a nutshell. Solution, what is solution aversion? Solution aversion is basically, I don't want to fix it. Because nobody wakes up in the morning and decides to reject 200 years of physics, the same physics that literally explains how airplanes fly and how stoves heat food. That's the physics that explains how digging up and burning coal and gas and oil produces heat trapping gases that are building up in the atmosphere, causing the planet to warm. Nobody wakes up and just decides to reject 200 years of physics. I mean, if they did, they'd also be rejecting airplanes and stoves and a whole lot of other modern technology. But what we do is we wake up in the morning and we go to our social media feeds. And there we look at what people who we agree with on all kinds of other social and political issues are saying. And when they're telling us that this thing isn't real or it's a hoax or those scientists are making it up or that the only solutions are to destroy the economy and take away my job and my livelihood and my freedom, then what we do psychologically is we make up reasons why it can't be true. And we will hold tooth and nail to this thing not being true because if it is true, it's really bad and we have to fix it. But if the only solutions are solutions that I fear more than the impacts, then I don't wanna fix it. But here's the thing. If I say, yes, this is a global crisis that disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable people. And if we don't fix it, it will be the end of civilization as we know it. That's what's at risk. But I don't wanna fix it. That makes me a bad person. And most of us truly don't want to be a bad person. We want to be a good person. We want to live according to good values. And so because of that, our defenses kick in. And we say it can't possibly be true because if it was true, I would want to fix it. And I don't want to fix it, so it can't be true. So, yeah, so we use motivated reasoning to go out and cherry pick the few things off the internet that show why we have to be right. And these days you can find anything on the internet. And then what we do is we perceive anyone who's saying otherwise to be a threat. And so that's why you and I are in a pretty stiff competition to be the most hated woman on climate on the internet. <laughs> I think you might have a slight edge on me, but, but we're neck and I don't neck. know. I don't know. It's it. You know what? Some days I'm like between you and me. And the campaign, some days there's campaigns. I, I did a tweet about climate grief in young people and boy, there was like some, so that really triggered something. Someone decided to spend some money on, on attacking. But so, I mean, it's interesting because how do we, how do we overcome that with folks? Like, so, you know, you can say that it's, you know, the, the, the solutions are too much. So how do we convince people, especially, you know, I think empathy is, and you and I've talked about that. I mean, empathy is really important. You know, it's one thing to live in, you know, downtown Toronto, Ottawa, and you're going to your Starbucks and you say, well, I don't know, we just get out of fossil fuels right now. Um, 
And then you go to uh, Alberta, you go to Calgary, you go to Fort McMurray and folks are like, wait a minute, that's my job. And by the way, people are still using those in downtown Toronto to live their life. So it's a complete disconnect. And how do we, how do we, how do we convince everyone to come maybe with a little more empathy? Because I think that, and sometimes I'm guilty of it. I realize that it's easy to fall into, so we got to do this. That's what we're doing. You know, we're not going to listen. You know, maybe we're going to just have to do what we have to do, but that's not necessarily going to get outcomes. And I think we need to focus on how do we get a positive outcome, knowing we won't convince everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, we have to realize that people don't fall into just two groups us and them, Mm -hmm. or believers and deniers, as people often use. Um, First of all, I don't like the word believer because it's not a religion. I mean, a thermometer tells you the same answer no matter how you vote. You might be blue, red, green, orange, it doesn't matter. You get the same answer. Um, And I don't like denier because all too often that term is applied to people who have questions. And the reason they have questions is because people they trust have told them information that simply isn't true. So there's this really interesting analysis called the Six Americas of Global Warming. And I know, you know, technically Mm -hmm. we're not the United States, but we do fall in North America, so I'll go with it. So the Six Americas of Global Warming from Yale University shows that people really fall into six groups. And even in the U.S., the biggest groups are people who are alarmed and concerned about climate change. Okay. Yeah. And, And in Canada, that's definitely true, too. The small group at the end, the dismissives, is only 7% of people in the US. And in Canada, I would venture to guess probably slightly less, not too much less, but somewhere around there, six, 7%. Dismissives are very loud, especially on social media. We all have a dismissive that we know in the family or a relative, a neighbor, an old coworker, old roommate, an old colleague. We all have one or more dismissives in our lives. And they are the people who are obsessed with the idea that it's a hoax. They're the people who like sign on to social media and send hate our way just because we represent such a threat. They're the people who, when you sit down to Christmas dinner, they can't wait to drag up how there's more polar bears now than there ever used to, or those scientists are just making it up, or wasn't it cold outside? How can they say there's global warming? So when I say that it's so important to talk about climate change, people often immediately say, oh, that's great. Tell me the formula to talk to so-and-so, the one dismissive I know, or the two or three, and I'm going to get them to change their minds. Here's the bad news. There is no magic formula to talk to dismissive because they won't listen, they can't hear. I've tried thousands of times, literally thousands, and they literally cannot hear the words coming out of your mouth. If you give them a link online, they literally cannot click the link, literally. The fear is so strong and the defense mechanism is so strong that they can't even absorb what you're saying. I had this experience just the other day speaking where I live here in the second most conservative city in the whole U.S. So I run into this a lot. Um, I was giving a talk to our local Lions Club and because I knew my audience I made sure to talk about how you know we know it's not volcanoes or natural cycles and here's why. And at the end a man came up to me and he said you didn't talk about how one volcanic eruption produces more pollution than the whole world does in 20 years. And I said That was literally the sentence that came out of my mouth. Literally, those exact words. And then I said, that's not true. One volcanic eruption produces hardly any heat trapping gases and all volcanoes in the world produce as much as a few mid-sized states. So that was an example of how he actually couldn't hear what I was saying. He really couldn't hear it. So aside from dismissives though, 93% of us are not. And there we can have positive conversations, but 
not by dumping fear-based facts on people. And this relates to Nika's question in the chat. What's it better to focus yeah. on, facts or solutions? But realizing that if they're not worried, it's because they don't understand how everything at the top of their priority list is already being affected by climate change today. And if you don't know what's at the top of their priority list, ask them questions and listen to what they're saying. Is it their job? Is it their, where they live? Is it their kids? Is it, what is it that they're mm -hmm. passionate about? It could be fishing or skiing or kayaking too. Find out what they're passionate about, connect the dots to how climate change is affecting it, and then make sure to bring up positive constructive solutions. Like all of the just transition work that not just the government is doing, but organizations like Iron, Iron and Earth out West, retraining people to do clean energy installations, Warren Buffett building the biggest wind farm in Canada and Alberta. Um, talk about positive, constructive solutions, reducing food waste, you know, signing up for ugly food deliveries, um, helping with people who are homeless, who have nowhere to go in, in the flooding and the heat waves that we're experiencing. Talk about real solutions people can get on board with so that every single one of us can be part of the solution because that's honestly what we really want to be. So I think that that's, I mean, that's a really good point, but we have something that's like a bit of a counterpoint to that. Um, and I can't see the name. I apologize because it was coming up too big. So I've been sent the actual questions, but how do we move past the individualization of responsibility when it comes to addressing climate change? Although, as you point out, that's really important. And it's important, not just because I think small changes are important, but actually it means that you're caring about the issue. You're acting on the issue. You're more likely to support, I assume, political parties, um, because you want folks to act on it. But how do you move the conversation past small-scale individual and lifestyle changes and towards mobilizing the public towards larger-scale changes, which are quite frankly required? Mm -hmm. What are some things we can do to do this? Now, I guess I kind of led with my answer, which would be, if you start doing a small change, you're more likely to support the big changes that may not be within your control beyond voting uh, and supporting politicians that do that. I certainly saw that that helped when folks would say to me, you know, I'm doing this, I can't, I'm trying to tackle plastic pollution. You know, they're telling me this because they, they believe that we need to take action and they support broader action. But maybe, how do you do that? Because the reality is for, you know, your average person, they may say, well, I'm doing this, but heck, we got to get off coal. The whole world's got to get off coal right now. So how do we move to that conversation? Well, you and I are on Twitter. And if anybody's interested, you can easily find us on Twitter. And there I see people all the time asking this question. So I'm so glad it came up. I see people asking, okay, is it individual action or systemic solutions that are gonna fix this? And my answer is yes. Because what is the system made up of other than people? A system is made of people. And how does the system change when people decide it has to? And what is the way that we activate or catalyze this change? It is when we activate not only our carbon footprint, but our climate shadow, when we use our voice to advocate for change. And when I say our voice, I want to be very clear. In some cases, literally our voice, like you and I are talking now. In some cases, we might be posting something. In some cases, we might be um, writing something. In some cases, it might just be that we're doing something, but other people can see us doing it. That's a form of talking too, right? So, of course, personal actions are important, but don't forget to talk about them. Talk about how you're reducing your food waste or eating more plant-based food or how you love the fact that I love the fact that I have a plug-in car so I didn't have to go to the gas station during COVID. I love that and I talked about that. But when we look 
And here's something really amazing. When we look at how our industrialized society has changed in the past, and it has, it has changed in profound ways. The abolition of slavery, women getting the vote, civil rights being enacted in the United States, apartheid ending in South Africa, gay marriage being legalized. When we look at how our society has changed, it was not because a prime minister or a president or a CEO or a big, rich, famous person rolled out of bed one morning and decided, oh, the world has to change, so I'm going to change it. It happened when very ordinary people, not the rich people, not the powerful people, not the famous people, but very ordinary people decided the world had to change, the world must change, and of course they did everything they could personally, but the biggest thing they did was they used their voice. And because of that, we know some of their names, but not that many. We know Nelson Mandela, right? We know uh, the Pankhurst sisters who advocated for women to get the vote. We know Martin Luther King Jr. But there are thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of people who used their voice too, who marched with them, who called for action and change. And you know what? The world changed. It changed because of them. So if you feel, you know, I'm just one person, what can I do? You know what? We are the people who have changed the world before. And we are the people who can do it again. And it begins by using our voice to catalyze change. Some of it could be voting. Some of it could be uh, speaking with everybody where we work in our neighborhood. It could be talking to our city uh, about what we can do as a city. Um, you know, declaring a climate emergency, for example, which Calgary just did, I think, wasn't that yesterday or the day before? Um, yeah. And that is what using our voice can do. And I love it because there's, there's a story in my book about my TED Talk where um, I did a TED Talk on how talking is so important and using your voice is so essential. And there was one man who watched my TED Talk and his name was Glenn. He lived in a borough of London, which is a suburb of the city of London. And he'd been advocating for climate action for a long time and he felt like nothing was happening. So he took my words to heart without me knowing anything about this. And he decided to have conversations with people in his borough, which had about 200,000 people roughly. In six months, he had 10,000 conversations wow. in his borough alone. And as a result of those conversations, getting all of those other people on board and activated instead of just him, there was 10,000 of them. His city voted to declare a climate emergency. A year later, they put aside 20 million pounds for a climate action plan, which is quite a lot of money for a small borough. And it all began with conversations. Those are the catalyst for change and every single one of us can do it. And you know what? Our young people are showing us how, aren't they? No, they're totally, oh my gosh, at my dinner table. Holy moly. Um, but it's really interesting that you say that. I mean, like, look, obviously everyone knows Greta now, but if you think like there's that picture of Greta that is, it's just, it's a black and white picture. She's just, she's sitting against, I think the parliament and just her on her own. No one knew Greta then. And you know what? She decided to take action and it resonated with others to your point that actually people care, but sometimes feel like there's not the space or how would they do it? And, uh, and there's also actually how you can vote with your, uh, you can speak with your dollars because that is where you see businesses. You're right about businesses saying, well, uh, you know, young people who want to work with us, the best and brightest are like, okay, you better be doing stuff on climate and explain it. But also, you know, when you make decisions that you're not going to buy certain products or you're going to support certain businesses, um, that changes things. And we've seen that, you know, we've seen that in automobiles, uh, Tesla, um, we've seen that, I mean, even uh, Wendy's, we only go to Wendy's because everyone now all has, we have Beyond Meat 
beef burgers like on me. But I mean, it's not that that's going to change everything, but it's just interesting that, you know, there was a lot of people weren't that interested or didn't think about that. So I think that that is an opportunity too. So we have a question here, how much it will, will it cost and where do we find the money? So interestingly, I had a little bit of, you know, a little bit of Twitter annoyance this morning because I looked and this one surprised that in the National Post, there was a columnist, um, well, kind of a regular contributor, regularly contributing kind of the same thing. How much green pain will Canadians tolerate? And I was like, for the love of God, every picture on my Twitter is like, it's, it's BC. It's like literally flooding and, and people posting in a bit pictures of their backyards being like absolutely flooded and there's mudslides and people are being rescued by the military. I was like, okay, one, tone deaf, but two, how much green pain? And this is where I think we all have to talk about money uh, and costs because if we think about, put aside the personal cost, and I think we should start quantifying personal costs because it leads to mental health issues, it leads to health issues, um, you know, concerns about uh, the environment, it leads to actually, or climate change leads to actually real issues like food shortages and all those things. But just put aside the personal cost, put aside the social cost. Mm -hmm. There's a huge economic cost to climate change right now. So I'm not probably, and we'll come to the actual, this question, how much does it cost and where do we find the money? But, you know, when you talk about cost, because you must get this question a lot, it's too, I, I understand, it may not be direct, but it's almost like it's too much money. And so what's the, like, what's the answer to that? Because to me, it seems almost obvious. I mean, you could say that like, there's not enough money to, you know, the, the planet is, is priceless, but then there's actual just real costs. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I have uh, three ways of looking at that. <laughs> and I'll start with the most obvious and go to the least obvious, which I think is the most important one. So most obviously, we can put numbers on how much worse climate change is making our events. So in Canada, our insured disasters doubled from the 1990s to the 2000s. They doubled. And the biggest reason they doubled was because climate change is loading the dice against us. Hurricane Harvey cost the United States about $120 billion in direct costs. And we know that the direct costs are only about 10% of the total eventual costs of any natural disaster. So Hurricane Harvey cost the US $120 billion and climate scientists can actually crunch the numbers. And we know that 75% of those costs were because of climate change supersizing the hurricane. Wow. If it had been 100 years ago, would we have heard, had a hurricane? Yes. Would it have been as strong with as much rain, as slow, as big? No, it wouldn't have. So 75% of $125 billion from a single event, where $125 billion is only 10% of the cost, that's a huge price tag from one event right there. We haven't crunched the numbers for the wildfires this summer yet, but the devastating wildfires from a few summers ago out in BC, climate change increased the area burned by 7 to 11 times. And we can put numbers on the actual damages to our, our infrastructure and our forests, as well as the wildfire smoke that people breathed in that sent them to the hospital and even led to deaths. So first of all, we are already paying the price, but you know what? The people who are reaping the profits are not the ones paying the price. 
those who reap the profits, and I'm not talking about the average person who you know works for the oil and gas industry out in Alberta to put food on the table. I'm talking about the investors, the stakeholders, and the very large high-paid executives at the top. They're the ones reaping the profits, but they're not paying the price. We are. So we are effectively subsidizing in a very socialist system. Isn't that ironic? We are subsidizing some of the richest companies in the world. But we're not just subsidizing them indirectly. We're subsidizing them directly. Uh, yeah. Fossil fuel subsidies, according to the International Monetary Fund, are $11 million per minute. Ooh. Per minute. In the U.S., fossil yeah. fuel subsidies exceed the Pentagon's budget. And so a big victory at this past COP was that countries agreed, including Canada, to phase out fossil fuel subsidies because why should taxpayers be subsidizing the richest companies in the world? It just does not make sense. But, yeah. so that was number two. Number one was the disasters. Number two is that we're subsidizing them. But for number three, I want to flip it around. I was asked the other day by a student, very sincerely, he said, how much is too much? How do we know if we're spending too much? You know, wouldn't it ruin the economy if we spend too much to fix climate change? And my answer to this is, we're looking at it the wrong way around. If we don't fix climate change, what's going to happen? The planet will survive. It's been warmer or cooler before. The question is, will human civilization survive? And if we don't fix climate change, the answer to that, I can tell you as a scientist, is no. There will be no economy if we don't fix climate change. We can't float around in outer space clutching our economy to our chest without the resources this planet provides. The question is not how much is too much. The question is, in order to save the economy and civilization, what is it worth? And I think most people from that perspective would answer, well, whatever it takes, because if we don't mm -hmm. do it, there will be no economy. And when we flip it around like that, isn't that a bit of a different picture? Uh, it will like, totally. And I think that that's, we need to think about this though, like in real hard costs, like think about right now in BC. Mm -hmm. So the costs are being paid, uh, you know, maybe, hopefully not, but in human lives. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, in real costs, these houses, I mean, you're looking at houses, they're completely flooded or they're mudslides, uh, the roads, um, the railway, uh, the, you know, they've all going to have to be rebuilt, but now we also have a supply issue, supply chain issue, because, you know, that's how we get a lot of our goods from the, the port of Vancouver and how are we getting them to the rest of the country? So obviously there's massive costs. How do you pay for it? Um, you know, I think that that is an important question. I mean, in the, in the way you do have to have money, but there's actually a lot of money, whether it's money that is subsidizing um, fossil fuels or not recognizing the huge economic opportunity of clean innovation. Um, and, and we've transitioned through various different eras. Um, as I say, we, you know, the, we didn't get out of the Stone Age because we ran out of stones. We got smarter and we innovated. And so I think that that's huge opportunity. And I think we need to think about that in Canada. How do we, we are a very fortunate country. We have the natural resources that we need for the economy of the future. We have a very well-educated population. I mean, gosh, people would, you know, you look at our beautiful country, how amazing it is. Um, I think we've got the real opportunity to, to, you know, to, to build the economy of the future and show how it's done. And I always say to folks, like the fact that we have a significant sector of our economy that relies on oil and gas, and we need to figure that out, the transition actually makes us more credible. I mean, as long as you're doing the hard work, because it's hard. If you don't have oil and gas, and you're, getting, you're saying, well, we're not going to invest in oil and gas, it's not very hard. Um, 
But okay, so let's now go. We've got a couple uh, other questions that I think are really, uh, they're really relevant. They're, they're in particular to the Canadian context. Um, one, how do you get across the political, all the different political actors? So you have divisions of responsibility between the federal government, the provincial government, municipal governments, um, provincial economies may be resource-based. So we've seen that. Obviously, Alberta, Saskatchewan can, or Newfoundland can have a greater hit on the um, of the economy um, as you transition. Um, and then there's the partisan nature of politics. So this one, I, I, I'm actually, if there's a magic bullet on this one, I'm very interested. But what does would it take to get all governments pulling in the same direction? <laughs> So I'll throw that to you first. I have a view on this, which may not, you know, be the happiest view, but but Catherine, what do you think? Well, so first of all, I would say I'm the scientist, you're the political expert. Okay, I'll take it, I'll take it. But you've seen, I mean, you've got to work with but you and you have. And, and the good thing about Catherine, you should follow her because she works across party lines, um, across, you know, a, you know, often working with religious groups or groups that may be skeptical. So Maybe, I mean, you know, you can, maybe, I mean, look, people are going to think whatever I say is partisan, probably, even though I'm out of politics, but maybe I'll put it to you first and then I'll give my take. Well, so what I would say is, is this people, and I have a chapter in my book specifically about this is how do you get governments activated? And I had a great discussion with all of my students last night. So after I got home from COP, I had a big discussion with all the students in my class that I teach. And they said, why can't you just make countries do it? And I, I said, how would you make them do it? Short of war, which would have even more negative impacts, how do you make a country do something? That's the whole point of these COP meetings, is for all the countries to come together and to offer carrots and sticks to each other, to say, if you do this and team up with me, we could do this together. If you don't do this, then here's what we're gonna do and it might not work out so well. But the way that you get it done is, unfortunately, cooperation. And I say unfortunately, I mean, because cooperation is a great thing and I'm all in favor of it, but it's slow. And we have not been listening to the scientists' warnings. Scientists were concerned enough about climate change to formally warn a U.S. president of the risks of climate change before we were born. It happened in the 1960s. The early 1960s was when scientists first warned a U.S. president. It was Lyndon B. Johnson. And if they had taken action then, then cooperation would have worked great over the last 50 plus years. But we didn't act. And so that's why we have to speed things up. So how do we speed things up? Carrots and sticks. Um, yep. What are the carrots? The carrots are innovation, technology, opportunities. In the U.S. where I live, there are far more jobs in solar energy than there are in the fossil fuel industry. And people just don't know that. And so mm -hmm. bringing those jobs into places like West Virginia and Southern Ohio and Utah where they have a lot of coal mining and obviously Alberta um, too, that really changes things. And I see this in Texas where I live. I mean, Texas is the Alberta of the US, but we're getting 23% of our energy from wind energy already. Texas is number wow. one in wind, it's number two in solar, but they're building the biggest solar farm in the US just outside of Dallas. And I think that's gonna bump Texas into number one. And there is a sea change happening here. There's sort of the governor at the top keeping the lid on the old order so to speak but underneath that there is massive change happening in the city of houston and dallas and san antonio in water districts and rural areas and jobs the world is changing very quickly and that's the carrot 90 percent of new energy installed around the world last year during the covid pandemic was clean energy 90 percent a lot of that in wow. low-income countries 
So I'm just going to do a time check because okay. you actually have to leave uh, to do your other session. We have four minutes. So I don't know if you want to talk about the stick. Quickly. Do we talk about the stick? Quickly. Okay, quickly. The, the stick is what's going to happen if you don't act. And I'd love to hear more from you about that. But what I do as a scientist is I tell people what's going to happen to your economy, your food, your water, your health, your infrastructure if you don't act. I've served as a lead author on the U.S. National Climate Assessment now for four different iterations. Here in Canada, of course, we have our climate adaptation strategy and our climate impacts and our climate science analyses. Showing people what's going to happen if we don't act is like you go to the doctor and the doctor does like a scan of your arteries and the doctor says, look, you got a big blockage over here and if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, you are going to end up on the operating table with a quadruple bypass surgery if you're lucky. That's a bit of the stick. What would you say? Well, I mean, so it's interesting. And, and I think that you made a good point. And I, I, we, there's a question here about the role of cities and funding. And I think that's one answer. One answer is like, okay, you can have a province or you talked about the state government in, in Texas that isn't very keen on acting. We'll go enable the actors that can. I went to Houston when Trump was empowered to show that actually Houston and the mayor of Houston was a leader of the climate mayors um, to show that, that Houston was acting. So I think you enable actors. And in fact, we gave the federal government money gave money directly to municipalities so they could act um, on climate. Uh, so that's one way of doing it. Um, I mean, look, I think that you can put out the incentives. You can make the right case. Um, you can put money on the table. That generally gets people a little more excited, uh, provincial level. But there's a limit. And, and, and this is where people maybe don't love it, but the science is the science, and I feel like we don't have time. And so we, when we put a price on pollution, we tried to get agreement, and we were being very flexible, and I got everyone. I got Arnold Schwarzenegger to do a video for me, talking as a Republican governor, who brought in a price on pollution, he brought a carbon, he created a carbon market, and his economy grew, uh, you know, at, it was the fastest growing economy in, in the country, and it didn't work. And in the end, you know what? We ended up at the Supreme Court. And so that may not be what people want to hear, but in the end, sometimes you got to do big things. And, and someone said this, I think it was David Plouffe, who works for Obama. He said, like, you're always going to have people who are going to disagree. So maybe sometimes you just have to do the really big things and move the dial, knowing you're going to get pushed back anyway, even if you do the little things. So that would be my inspirational piece. You get elected with a mandate to do things. That's like, unfortunately, and you're not, you don't get elected to be best friends with everyone. You get, so that's my view. I don't know. That's uh, the Catholic kind of philosophy of life. But on climate, I think that, that we have to be very disciplined. We have to be focused. But I want to end just by thanking you, Catherine. You are always an inspiration. You are so positive and you really help, I think, close the gap between scientists who are often talking about these concepts and people are like, enough about that and real people. And I think everything in climate has to be back to real people. It's real people's lives. It's real people's opportunity. It's about the future we want for our kids and grandkids. So I would say this, everyone saving us is out, a climate scientist case for hope and healing in a divided world. It's an amazing book. It will give you personal tips, but it'll also make you optimistic that we can do this because we can, Catherine, we can. You and I know this. We got to empower women and girls. So women leading on climate is important because often we don't hear those voices of the scientists, of the negotiators, of the women taking action, of the you know women in, in their communities. So I'm going to be working on that piece too. But thank you very much. Go inspire all these kids, a thousand kids in Toronto, outside Toronto. Halton. Halton, amazing. Well, I know lots of uh, folks will be, uh, kids will be really excited and they'll go talk to their parents. Yes. She'll be like their grandparents. 
Well, thank you very much. And thanks to Canada 2020. Thanks to all the sponsors. It's always great to have these conversations.